Podstarter. So, Reese, who'd you talk to today? Uh, I was talking to the wonderful Chris Boyce from Pacific Content. No. Uh, I, I usually ask you the question, you know, why did you reach out and talk to Chris? But I almost want to ask it the other way around. Why Why would Chris want to talk to you? <laughs> uh, uh, because of my magnetic personality and overwhelming expertise. I imagine, maybe. Right. Or right. maybe just that you made a mistake. This is this is an outstanding guest for us to talk to. This yeah. is, it's, it's, a, it's a company that we are, I want to say aspirational to. They do a lot of things extraordinarily well. Yeah, I mean, the kind of brands they're making podcast content for is it's mind blowing you know uh, slack adobe ford you know a lot of the um a lot of their clients are like big silicon valley kind of um uh you know um, digital kind of um global presences so i think that uh the kind of space they're in um they're they're a canadian company as well but that most of the operations happen actually in the u.s and most of the clients are in the u.s what they've built is a very impressive um and kind of unique uh, organization really the the uh now you've you've tipped me off a little bit on this conversation that yeah we've had and I, they were early to the game to a degree where it is full in-depth storytelling from a podcast standpoint yeah. but with i want to say sort of brand alignment or sort of come along brand partners but it's it's even more than that isn't it yeah i, I think that they 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 seem to approach every kind of pod, podcast um in a different way for each client so, so sometimes they're doing like you know interview based shows other times they're doing documentaries they're kind of poaching like amazing hosting talent to kind of bring them in and and kind of cast them for the right shows and to deliver the, the to execute the kind of right the right creative brief it's it's is is amazing to to know that there's a company that has kind of really blazed a trail and that firstly they blazed a trail and have you know started to really show what podcasting can be used for in, in a way that hadn't been used before and secondly they, they yeah you agreed to talk to us <laughs> <laughs> well it, like it like i say it, it, it's aspirational for us to a degree it's a it's a company and a structure that they build podcasts that we'd love to build as well um and their their capabilities on full storytelling that that is uh, audience first yeah uh and then it's audience story and then sort of the brand as the as the come along piece with it so it's i think it's a great conversation for us to have i always ask you for our listeners because this podcast is designed for us to have takeaways what are we learning so from this conversation what what did you learn and what can we share with our listeners i guess i hope listeners come away with a sense of what is possible with podcasts and uh how effective they are you know the caliber of of who uh, who Chris and his team are working with is is an indication of the potential for uh, you know other different sized organizations. You don't have to be Slack, for instance, to be able to benefit from this. You could be an SME or a startup, and you can learn from these these kind of um, strategies and apply them to your own business through podcasting as well. Oh, that's really cool. All right, well let's uh, let's jump into the uh, I guess the story of Pacific Content with your interview with Chris Boyce. Uh, okay, so with me is Chris Boyce from uh, Pacific Content, and uh, Chris, you make original content for some amazing brands like uh, Slack, Zendesk, Dell, Facebook, Prudential, Audible, CBS. 
I just wonder if you could introduce the listeners to uh, a little bit about what you do, really. Yeah, we've, we've carved off what I think, you know, is a very specific uh, and some would say odd or unique niche. Uh, but it's proved to actually be very successful because I think it's it's tapped into a, a couple of trends that have you know really taken off in the last couple of years. We pretty much exclusively work creating original podcasts with brands, and I think you know sort of the two converging trends that we've jumped on is one obviously the rise of podcasting and the way that it's taken off over the last couple of years, and then the second is around uh, brands who want to become media companies and who want to develop a more direct relationship with with their audience. And, you know, we look at the podcast that we create as, you know, great content. We want the podcast we create to be some of people's favorite podcasts on par with non-branded stuff. Um, they just happen to be financed and produced by, by brands. Uh, the, the key with podcasting is that you're actually offering something of value and, and that you're offering some kind of really interesting show that people want to listen to and share and, and talk about. And and it feels like you have tapped into that quite well. Have you got a, a kind of a, a, a roller coaster story, I guess, where you were the first in the marketplace to do this and nobody else was doing it? So how how did how did you start initially? You know, it's, uh, it's funny going back to the, you know, to the origin story. And I, I, you know, in some ways, it was, uh, it was accidental. I actually uh, joined the company, uh, Steve Pratt and uh, Jennifer Wano, who are two of my partners had landed Slack as their very first client when Slack was a tiny company, not a multi-billion dollar publicly listed corporation. It was a tiny little company and uh, and they wanted to create a podcast. Uh, and, and in some ways they were very, Slack was very sort of forward thinking and actually informed a bunch of our thinking about podcasting. Uh, and they always sort of thought of, of podcasting as sort of a way uh, to, to, to build, uh, a relationship with their audience. They always sort of thought of their podcast as a gift, something that they were giving to their audience. And at the time Slack really was growing by word of mouth. It hadn't really sort of built out sort of, you know, it's big business enterprise focus. It was uh, a collaboration tool that was primarily, you know, being installed by users inside companies and it was growing organically. And, and, and the team at Slack saw the podcast as a way to sort of, you know, build a relationship with that with that with that audience um and i think you know based on that success we sort of thought hmm maybe there's something here uh and maybe there are other brands that would sort of you know share that that viewpoint of how they sort of engage a, a, an audience and create this sort of experience and relationship with them through a, through a podcast uh and, and i joined and we started talking to some other brands uh and and really the the company took off from there i don't think at the time we knew that you know working exclusively with brands was going to be a business model that would sustain an, another and you know an entire company but because we sort of jumped on it and we jumped on it early and we developed this sort of really weird niche expertise i think we ended up becoming the sort of the leaders in in this very specific market so the podcast you made is responsible for the growth of Slack. Is that always part of it? A big part of it? <laughs> I, I wish we could take credit for that. That's probably, that, that, that might be a stretch. But you know, it was you know, it was it was really interesting. Um, you know, in those sort of early days, working with a company that was growing so rapidly and hadn't really done any marketing before, and was sort of you know figuring out you know, what marketing could be from from the from the ground out uh, from the ground up. And I think that you know, in in, in you know 
one of the things we took away from our work with Slack was also just how we built our own company and, and you know, and, and sort of tried to build it not in the sort of, uh, you know, model of media companies of the past, but using a, you know, distributed workforce that sort of spread out remotely, uh, that uses, you know, cloud-based collaboration tools and, you know, and a bunch of stuff. So in some ways, unintentionally working with Slack, uh, you know, helped inform sort of the company that we ended up building. That's amazing. So, so uh, could you give us a little bit of an idea of, of the, the size and kind of the operations of, of um Pacific content. Yeah, so today we're about uh, 30 employees. Um, we have an office in uh, Vancouver, which is closed right now uh, due to the uh, to the pandemic. Um, but we've got a, a, about 30 employees uh, spread uh, between uh, Vancouver, Victoria, Toronto, and we've got one employee out on uh, out on the East Coast. Um, we were acquired uh, by Rogers Communications, the large Canadian vertically integrated telecommunications company, uh, last spring. So we're we're now a part of the the Rogers family. Family. Uh, and, you know, one of the other things that I think is unique about Pacific content and, and our sort of operations is we are a proudly Canadian company uh, with Canadian employees, but we work largely or almost exclusively with big U.S. brands. It's really interesting. So I guess not only were the first in the Canadian marketplace, I guess you're just talking generally North American in terms of the marketplace. Yeah. And, you know, it's been it's been interesting. Um, I think a big part of the reason that so much of our work is uh, is in the States is just the size of the market. Right. The market is 10 times larger uh, than the market in in Canada. Uh, a lot of companies are ten times larger, or have you know marketing budgets that are you know uh, you know sized to the market. So I think the the willingness of big brands to take a chance on something that's a bit unconventional, like a podcast, it was a bit of an easier sell in the states. And because we had sort of developed this uh, you know virtual workflow from the very beginning, it's been pretty easy to you know work remotely with uh, with clients that are, are are south of the border. And it's it's ended up being a blessing in disguise as you know as the world works to everybody working from home it's been a fairly easy transition for us over the past uh couple of weeks um uh you know as we move into a different mode of working with you know offices shut down and it's really interesting at the moment it seems that the the remote nature and the the way that podcasting has been built from the start uh it, it means the industry isn't necessarily heavily affected in a way that like the film industry is yeah, we were surprised how easy it was to move to a sort of completely virtual workflow. And, you know, there was there was a frantic couple of days of shipping gear out to, you know, hosts who normally go into studios and, you know, making a lot of orders and tracking deliveries. But um, yeah, the transition has gone really smoothly. And it's interesting what you say about, you know, people who are now working at home, looking at those back burner projects. We've had, we expected that, you know, new business was going to dry up. And we've been surprised that, you know, a number of new projects have come in the door uh, over the last uh, the last two weeks. And it, I think that that idea of podcasting being something that sort of people want to do, but they don't always have the time to do. I've actually noticed in the past in that often some of our busiest uh, some of our busiest business cycles in the last couple of years have been at the end of the summer when people come back from some time off and it's sort of like their boss says, Hey, whatever happened to that podcast you were going to make? And they're like, right, <laughs> I should go make that podcast. Or likewise, you know, at the beginning of the the calendar year, it's almost like people 
you know, set a new year's resolution of this is going to be the year I make a podcast. So I think you're right. Like, you know, even in a lot of the brands that we deal with, the podcast is often driven by an individual who's passionate about podcasting and has sort of convinced their boss to set aside some money to do it. Um, so let's, let's hope that this, you know, maybe the, the silver lining of the, you know, awful, awful moment that we find ourselves in, you know, worldwide, it, you know, that the silver lining is, you know, some people finally, uh, realize their dreams to, uh, to start podcasting. And that's the weird thing about it as well, is that you mentioned you always get someone who's almost evangelical about podcasting in an organization that drives them to do it. I've, I feel like every time we meet uh, a new organization, we leave the meeting with um, a ton of new podcast recommendations for ourselves, but also for other people. It seems to be there's a, a really strange bonded experience <laughs> you have when you, you go, how well, we could do a show like this or a show like this. And then people start throwing in what they love and what they don't like. And it seems like a, a, that passion, if, if you find the right people to, to talk to and to tap into, it, it makes it a very easy process. I don't Having produced like video for organizations, I've never felt the same enthusiasm as you do right now necessarily about the possibility of doing a podcast. Yeah, you're absolutely right. You know, it, it's uh, you're. I've ne you meet people who love podcasting, and it is almost like this sort of I don't know. There's like a secret handshake, and uh, <laughs> and you see that passion, right? And and it's true. Like I and I think you know this is this has been part of the way that the medium has grown over the last decade is it's been driven by, you know, passionate users who are also evangelists. And I find so often it's like we'll go in and we'll meet with a client, and you can tell the two or three people in the room who are the avid, avid, you know, podcast uh, fanatics. And, you know, they feel like their job is to win over the, their boss or the rest of the department. And that's actually been a really, really good lever for us to pull inside some, you know, big companies because we have got projects off the ground through the sheer passion and enthusiasm of, you know, some of the people inside those companies. And uh, in terms of your background personally, uh, what what did you do before you joined Pacific Content in terms of how how were you kind of um, ready to leap into this new kind of podcasted enterprise? So I have a much more I, I have a fairly conventional media background. So I worked for t just over twenty years at CBC, which is Canada's public broadcaster, um, and uh, ran the ran English radio in the last couple of years that I was that I was there. I had always been fascinated uh, by the promise of what digital delivery of audio could uh, could mean to the medium. And, you know, the biggest challenge at a public broadcaster like CBC is, you know, even if you have two over-the-air networks, and at CBC there's a news and information service and a, a music service, you are by necessity of, you know, having an over-the-air uh service, you are a broadcaster, right? You are trying to reach the broadest possible audience. Um, and, you know, the promise of podcasting that was always so enticing is you could deliver programming on demand to the niche audience or to the audience who wanted to consume that content at the time they wanted to hear it. You weren't a slave to a broadcast schedule that, you know, worked on time of day and available audience and available demographic and, and all of that kind of stuff. But conversely, the most frustrating thing for me for years at CBC was the size of that digital audience that was listening to podcasting 
was still relatively small and it was difficult to justify investments creating content for that digital audience when you know maybe you know 10 12 13 percent of the canadian population was listening to podcasts and it would it was sort of agonizing we would you know we would commission or get research around the growth of you know podcast and on-demand listening and for years it would be like you know one year 13 percent of canadians would listen to a podcast in the next in the you know previous month and then the year after it would be 13 and a half percent. And then, you know, maybe in a good year, it would jump up, you know, the next year, it would be up to 14%. Um, but it was still a very sort of, you know, niche, uh, niche listening behavior. So, um, you know, I left CBC uh, about five years ago. And it was exciting because it was at the time the digital audio was taking off. And, um, and that was the that was, you know, it felt like the moment to jump into the space. And it's, it is crazy. After all of those years of seeing, you know, podcasting grow so slowly now to, you know, see in a couple of years that, you know, the audience has probably, you know, doubled and, you know, continues to grow at a fairly rapid clip. And um, why do you personally think that has been such a success? Why, why have you got a, a an opinion on on why it's exploded in the way that it has? You know what I I, I have always believed that um, you know that podcasting or or on demand audio or streaming or you know whatever you want to call it was a far better way to consume content, right? Like that, you know, on the music side, it was far, uh, you know, it was a far more rewarding experience to use a service like Spotify or Apple Music and customize the music you were listening to than to listen to a stream that someone else had uh, had programmed. On the, you know, on the, you know, talk or information side, I always thought it was better to listen to the show you wanted to hear at the time you wanted to hear it than, you know, wait around for it to appear on a, a, on a broadcast schedule and there's a ton of things that live radio or live audio does really well and I don't think it's going away anytime soon but it just felt like there was this whole other side of audio consumption that was being unexplored uh, and uh, you know and and wasn't being developed and, and in many ways it was just a better way to consume audio I think for a lot of years the biggest impediment was it just wasn't convenient, right? Radio was easy. Podcasting was difficult, right? Like if I think back to the, you know, the early days of, you know, when I first started listening to podcasts, you would literally download the podcast in iTunes. You would plug your iPod with the USB cable yeah, yeah. into the computer. You'd <laughs> sideload the podcast on and then, you know, yeah. you'd go for a ride and realize you'd load it on the wrong episode or you'd run out of content or the device didn't have enough space. Like there was so much friction <laughs> in that, uh, in that experience. And, you know, to me, maybe, you know, the, maybe the most illuminating piece of research that I remember seeing, I don't know, this was probably six or seven years ago, was I was trying to figure out why people weren't listening to podcasts or streaming audio in cars, which was not super common sort of six, seven years ago. And, uh, you know, and, and, and we commissioned some original research at CBC. And, and one of the questions was, you know, have you, uh, ever listened to, um, digital audio in in your car uh and uh the answer for most people was uh no or maybe i tried it but i don't do it on, on, a, on a ongoing basis 
And, you know, then if you asked a question like, you know, do you have a Bluetooth enabled phone? A lot of people said yes. Does, you know, do you have the, you know, audio input jack, you know, where you can plug the stereo mini cord from your phone into the dashboard and here on the car stereo? The answer was yes. But it was just, it was a slightly convoluted and complicated experience, right? It took time to pair the phone. It took time to figure out how to get the cable hooked into the, the dashboard. And I think the success of, radio for so many years was it was easy, right? You just got into the car, you turned one knob, something came out of the speakers. And I think what we began to see is anything that got in the way of that easy, seamless experience, even if it was, you know, 20 seconds hooking your phone up to the car stereo when you first got on and got into the car, significantly lowered the chances of anyone actually listening to audio that way. So I just saw this, you know, medium that I thought had huge potential, but just hadn't caught on. And I think it just hadn't caught on because it was too difficult. And I think probably the biggest thing, you know, a lot of people credit serial for the sort of the, the rise of podcasting. I think actually think the biggest thing that probably drove the first wave of growth in podcasting was when Apple put a dedicated Apple podcast app on every iPhone. And all of a sudden, it was just that much easier to listen to to podcasts. Yeah, and I guess as as like four G has been rolled out and you know better bandwidth as well, it and and also more affordable data packages. There's like those barriers have just kept dropping and dropping and dropping. Um, and you still get. I guess the problem is now there's too much choice to access something easily. So, and everybody says, "I've never listened to a podcast. How should I start?" It kind of, it, you, there's almost like a, a diagram, a flowchart you go through of, okay, do you have Android or Apple? And then you can kind of go it's through. Absolutely, it's a, it's a, it's an entirely different kind of friction that I actually think is impeding the the further growth of of podcasting. You're absolutely right, right? Like the the challenge a few years ago was actually explaining to someone how to listen to a podcast. The challenge today is how do you find the content that you like or that you're going to like? And I think that, you know, there's a bunch of reasons why it is the way it is. And some of it is the sort of the open nature of the podcast ecosystem, which is something that I love and, you know, but that I think it's, it is actually uh, as much as there are a lot of people trying to solve that problem today. Uh, that is the challenge today is that there is so much content and it is at times overwhelming and it is difficult for somebody who's getting into podcasting to actually figure out what they want to listen to. Which is why I love like the personal recommendations. I still think that's always the most powerful way that people get discovered is is through that because obviously you you go on a, a typical feed for, for most podcasts and, and those major networks dominate so heavily. Um, and those kind of, you know, the Joe Rogans of the world are always the most prominent. Uh, and, and I think people do like having those little personal recommendations uh, based on kind of the niche that they're into. There is like literally something for everyone. Uh, and, and because that is hard to find and because there are so many dead shows out there as well that aren't even posting anymore, it could be, it is a minefield for certain. Yeah, ab absolutely. And um, yeah, I think that, that, that I, we often say, clients often say, you know, how do I get someone to listen to my new podcast? And, you know, we have a whole suite of recommendations, but at the end of the day, personal recommendation is probably the most powerful way to, you know, to get people to try something new. Although, you know, I, I do, I find it really interesting, the growth that we've seen in podcast consumption in Spotify over the last six to 12 months. Um, and as, you know, just a Spotify user on the, on the music side, it's very interesting to begin to see podcast recommendations sort of slipping in 
to the Spotify interface alongside, you know, music and, you know, Discover Weekly and all of that, you know, music curation, it's interesting to see them beginning to, you know, curate a podcast listening experience. And, and I think that kind of discovery, I think personal recommendation is going to remain critical uh, in podcasting, but that kind of putting podcasting alongside other mainstream contents in a service like Spotify that people already use is going to be really interesting just to see how that grows or, or changes the podcast market in the next year or two. As this distribution kind of model has, has developed as well, the thing I love is that you've got these kind of old broadcast institutions like CBC and BBC and NPR, and they're not doing anything that differently in terms of the creative um, construction of the kind of projects they make. It's all just the distribution. You know, now those shows aren't just being played on the radio. They're being distributed in a completely different way and reaching a completely new audience that otherwise would probably have never found that content. Um, I, I'm always amazed with with like NPR that, you know, the, uh, the, the growth that they've had without really, with the focus purely still being on making really, interest in content or telling great stories or just really thorough journalism and people want it they just weren't having it distributed to them in a way that they they were comfortable with and now they do you've got this huge explosion of of um people wanting their content yeah and i think you know that's you know having spent many years in public broadcasting that is the biggest challenge of many public broadcasters in the sort of legacy broadcast space is there is an audience that listens to especially public radio on broadcast platforms and it's not as broad and diverse an audience as you would want to reach right a public you know i i i don't work in public broadcasting anymore but i still am a you know fervent believer that public broadcasting is for the public right it's for all audience of all ages and and backgrounds uh but the reality is no matter what you do with the programming, the available broadcast radio audience skews older, right? It is a very specific audience. And I think you're absolutely right. NPR has, you know, done an amazing job of taking content that is consistent with its values or what it believes it should be doing, but all of a sudden getting it in front of a very different audience than might have ever heard it on, strictly on a broadcast platform. And then once you begin reaching that younger, more diverse audience, it opens up all sorts of interesting opportunities of what content then can you create that you might not do on a broadcast platform, but you might do uh, as a podcast because you, you, you now are reaching people that you never connected with before. Yeah. And I think, I think the, the real opportunities are for, um, you know, pe people who are from a, a more of an amateur background, from that grassroots kind of uh, tradition of podcasting, the ability for, for people to just have these creative ideas to go out and make something that speaks to people and, and to shine without necessarily needing to convince um, a broadcaster to have the resources or permission to do it. It's really interesting. I, I like that. I like the fact that you've got these more um, refined, polished, uh, career-driven kind of uh, pieces of content out there, but also alongside the more passion-based environment. And you don't get that on many platforms. No, it's it, 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 in some ways, it's the thing I love most about podcasting, right? Is you literally still have, you know, guys in their basement going up against, you know, high, you know, budget productions from, you know, well-financed media companies. And, you know, 
the guys in their basement uh, in many cases have just as large or large audiences than some of those those media companies. I know it you know it is creating some tension in the podcast ecosystem between the sort of you know the indie podcasters and the big media companies. I don't necessarily see it as uh, an unhealthy tension. Um, I think you know there is room for both. There will continue to be room for both. There should continue to be room for both. But it's part of what makes podcasting so vibrant, right? And I love the idea that literally with, you know, a couple of hundred bucks of gear, you can be out there reaching an audience of millions of of people. It's, uh, it's, it's exciting. And it's, I think led to, you know, a, you know, a, a, you know, to, to use the cliche, uh, sort of a golden age of audio content, right? There is more hours of compelling audio content being produced today than, you know, probably at any point in, in history. So, so with like so many ideas out there with everyone, like I, as an experiment, I was trying to find a topic which only had one show on <laughs> and I searched like things like knitting yeah. and there are loads of podcasts about knitting. And I was looking at like uh, every, everything I could find. And the only show that I managed to find that had one, uh, one show was, you know, do you remember Do South? The yeah, um, I do, I do. The yeah. Mountie uh, Police Director, yeah, yeah. which was a really big hit in the UK. It was, I mean, really, was, I think, yeah, yeah. It was, it was massive in the UK. It always used to be on at like six PM in the week, uh, in the weekdays. I remember always eating my going home, eating my dinner, watching Do South when I was a kid. I had no <laughs> and, idea. Yeah, yeah. So I moved to Canada because of that. I'm joking. But, <laughs> There was literally one show on that talks about the, or they review the episodes, they talk about the, the cast and the stories, and it's really hard to find those. You know, is there is so much choice. So, um, when you you meet with a brand, how do you go about the process of I matching a brand with a concept, or is it driven by the the goals of the brand? You develop the concept through that when you're working with businesses or organizations to find those new angles? Is that a process that you you find a challenge or is that the challenge that you enjoy doing? Uh, I, I actually think it's the challenge that I enjoy doing. And I've, I've enjoyed it more, I think, than I expected. And I've actually found it creatively far more open than I thought it would be. Um, yeah, our, 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 our process when we work with a new client really is sort of, you know, built into three sec- three key sections. The first is around strategy. Uh, and that is around trying to understand the the brand, uh, their brand objectives, their brand voice, their marketing objectives, and how we translate those into podcast strategy. And our process really is designed around creating shows um, and creating original shows based on the the specific objectives of the brand. So we don't tend to go in with an idea for a podcast and then try to find a brand that wants to make that show. We work the other way around. We try to find brands who want to be in podcasting, understand what their objectives are, and then create the content out of what it is that they, they want to do. The second piece is then making that content. And then the third piece, and I think you know, you've, you've hit on it, it's increasingly difficult in a in a very sort of crowded podcast marketplace, is then building an audience for that content. And I think that that sort of that expertise around audio audience development, and how you build an audience is probably more important now than it's than it's ever been before. But like those three buckets, and that sort of three step process, I think is really important. And, you know, for us, you know, the marrying of a strong program concept with 
the objectives of a brand is the sort of the secret sauce, I think, or the magic of, of, of what we do. And out of it, we need to create uh, original programs that are authentic and that audiences love, but are still in line with the needs of the brand. So, you know, the show that we create for McAfee, the internet security company called Hackable, is based on a premise uh, that in movies and TV shows, we, you know, see hackers up to, you know, devious things. Uh, how dangerous or how much at risk are you from those hacks or things that we see in, in movies and TV? So it's, we, we sort of think about it as myth busters for internet security. So we actually, you know, identify a potential hack and then we try to recreate it to find out how dangerous it is. So if, you know, you saw the scene in the Fast and the Furious where somebody, you know, hacks into a car, we'll go out to, uh, you know, we'll rent a, we'll take a rental car, we'll go out to, uh, you know, uh, racetrack and we'll try to get the hacker to hack the car while we're driving it, you know, down the, down the lane at the, the test track. So it's, um, it's original. It feels fresh. I think it's compelling for an audience, but it's also super useful for McAfee, which is trying to position themselves as a helpful brand, uh, in the sort of internet security space that can keep you safe from the dangers that are, that are out there. And I think, you know, I just use that specific example because I think it's, it really is the sort of the marrying of a program concept with the needs of a brand. And I find it really interesting how um, I think I call it advertising tolerance, <laughs> where people are mm -hmm. willing to to embrace a brand or a product within a within a show that they feel loyal to or they love way more than they would in another medium. So if I was going to listen to a podcast that was maybe put together by I don't know like BMW, but if it was a really good podcast that really caught my attention. I, I don't I wouldn't that wouldn't bother me that brand association. I would just enjoy the show and I'd be grateful that they paid for it to be funded. Whereas if I saw um really obvious product placement in a movie or a TV show, I, I would be very cynical and go, oh, you know, no one would ever hold a, a can of uh, Coca-Cola <laughs> that way and look at that, the, the the you know, the moisture is perfectly kind of dripping off the side of the can. It just doesn't look real. And I'm one of those I find it really strange in my head how I can process the one without feeling emotionally <laughs> negative and the other one uh, kind of really jumps out to me, I guess. It's it's a really good point. And I think it's all about making it authentic. Um, and, it, you, you know, it's it's funny when you think about the conventional model of conventional advertising, you know, the 30 second spot on TV or on radio in essence, what a brand is doing is interrupting the content that you love, right? Like if you're watching a, exactly. if you're watching primetime TV and the two minute ad cluster comes on, you are now being interrupted with someone's messaging that you don't want to hear. So I think a lot of smart brands are thinking of, okay, how do we actually convey the messaging that we want to convey, but not interrupt someone's experience. And in some ways, that's that's a huge advantage of a podcast that is produced by a brand is there is no interruption, there is no break, there is no pre mid or post roll that's taking you out of the 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 experience from, you know, you know, from the point of view also of a brand, they are also engaging a listener not only in a positive way, so they're giving them content that that you know listener values and loves. They also have some extraordinary uh, engagement period, right? So if somebody listens to 
uh, I don't know, Dell's podcast Trailblazers for half an hour where Walter Isaacson is giving a history lesson about, you know, innovation and, and disruption. Dell has now built a 30-minute relationship with that listener. And hopefully that's a 30-minute re- you know, relationship with that listener that happens week in, week after week after after week. And if you compare that engagement to, you know, how long a brand might be connecting with a, you know, um, a viewer on, you know, a video that they've posted on YouTube or reading a blog post the engagement rates on podcasts are phenomenal, right? Like our, our audience retention data is that, you know, most people finish 85 to, you know, 90% of the podcast that they're, they're listening to. And if that podcast is 25 minutes, half an hour long, that's an incredible, incredible amount of engagement that a brand is getting with a listener in podcasting, which I think is a super intimate, you know, one-on-one kind of, of connection. So not only is it a better experience for the listener, it's a far deeper engagement for the brand. It's also way more cost effective as well. Yeah, <laughs> you like think it, about how much those slots cost on uh, like the set, the Super Bowl, and you know, absolutely. We do, you know, we've done some, you know, fun, fun numerical analysis comparing the cost for thirty seconds of audience attention. And if you look at it that way, uh, podcasting is a, you know, fantastically cost effective uh, and also just plain effective uh, way to, to reach an audience. So what for you has been your favorite show or biggest achievement at Pacific Content? Is there something you made that you're really proud of in particular? Uh, you can't pick a favorite child. Uh, I love all <laughs> of our shows. Um, you know what, you know, to me, to me, the, 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 the most rewarding part like absolutely all of the, you know, there's a ton of shows we've produced that are, that are incredibly rewarding and that I, you know, uh, you know, love to me, the most rewarding thing has actually been, uh, building the team and, you know, building, um, building a team from scratch. And that's been, that's a very different, um, experience for me than working in public broadcasting where you come into a place where you know by and large the staff are already there the question is how do you you know deploy what project do you deploy them to make so it's been really fun to you know smart start with a super small group and grow it up into a you know 30 person company and get to design everything from the you know creative process to the internal culture of the company from from scratch and you know that that just i i you know i often used to say in public broadcasting it's sort of like a once or twice in a lifetime opportunity to create a new show um i sort of think it's you know this has been sort of the once in a lifetime opportunity to create a new company from the ground up and and that honestly for me has been the the most rewarding part of it and for any listener thinking of starting a podcast what piece of advice would you give them and it's really interesting because i don't think we've had someone with your perspective on before so having worked with big brands and making kind of uh shows with high production values what would you say to that kind of grassroots person in the basement who is just going to start doing something next week well the the first thing is you you can do it there are still you know grassroots people indie podcasters starting in the basement who are creating shows with huge audiences. So it's tougher maybe than it's been in the past, but it is still absolutely possible. Um, The piece of advice I would give is 
to think as much about how you're going to build the audience for your show as the show itself. And that's everything from what you were talking about earlier. Like, is there a niche, you know, where there aren't already a ton of podcasts? Is there an audience that, you know, maybe I already reach um, or have a connection to not through podcasting that I can reach with my podcast? Um, are there, you know, different communities of interest that I can tap into? Um, you know, three or four years ago, you could just make an interesting new podcast and the marketplace was open enough that sometimes literally you could just release it and people would listen to it because it was new, right? Like it was, it was, a, it was a different, it was a different world and it was a lot easier for cool new stuff to, you know, get featured in the front of Apple podcasts or just to sort of, you know, get discovered. That kind of stuff doesn't happen as accidentally anymore. Um, but smart, people build communities of interest and where possible those communities of interest sustain sustain shows one of my favorite examples is a guy i work with named dan meisner who uh has created a podcast uh that he's done for years now so this is not something new he was he was early into podcasting but i love the model of it because it really is about community the show's called grown-ups read things they wrote as kids uh and the show is pretty much as you would imagine from the title grown-ups get on stage <laughs> at a live great. event and they read things they wrote as kids and some of it is hilarious some of it is heartbreaking um and it's a very compelling show dan sort of started this uh as a passion project a number of years ago with his uh with his wife and they staged a event at a bar in toronto and they recorded it and then they released it as a podcast but he's built it into a really sort of vibrant community where you know it's a you know podcast that comes out i think every two weeks he does a series of live events where they tour around canada you know to sold out audiences of hundreds of people who pay to come and see the show um but he's tapped into something. There was nothing quite like that that existed. He found this sort of combination of the people who wanted to come to see the live show who would then listen to the podcast and the people who would listen to the podcast who would then come see the live show. And he nurtured this community slowly and surely over a number of years and has built something that I think is you know, truly remarkable and, and truly special. But I think he, he, through that whole process, thought about the sort of the symbiotic nature of the live events, the podcast, and how he would build that sort of community around the show. So, so my advice is to really think about who your community is and how you're going to build that community for your show. Absolutely, you do not need to be a, you know, well-bankrolled, uh, you know, podcast, you know, you know, created by or partnered with some big media company, but you do need to think thoughtfully about how it is that you're going to build the the audience for your show. Thanks so much for your time, Chris. Um, where can people find out more about Pacific Content? Um, uh, can you suggest some some of the shows they should uh, listen to that you've produced? <laughs> Many shows to listen to. Uh, you can find out more about the the company uh, on our website, pacific-content.com. Um, and actually, if you go there, you can uh, you can uh, find links to all of the different shows we produce. Um, you know, some great places to start. Uh, you know, we talked about uh, talked a few minutes ago about Hackable, the internet security show. There's a a uh, great show we do for for Dell called Trailblazers, which is about it's hosted by Walter Isaacson, who's uh, sort of a prominent U.S. historian author, who uh, does a show about the 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 
you know, uh, technical disruption and how some industries survive and some don't. Uh, I, I think it's a great show. We do a neat show for uh, Charles Schwab, uh, the U.S. Uh, investment company called Choiceology. It's about behavioral economics. Uh, and it's all about uh, the little choices that we all make in our lives every day and how you make better choices and what the sort of psychological biases are that, uh, that allow us uh, to make good and, uh, and bad choices. Um, we do it. A, a really interesting show if uh it's and this is a neat example of sort of a niche show um we do a show for for red hat uh which is a open source uh linux developer called um uh, command line heroes and it's all about open source software developers and uh and the sort of the history of that industry and the sort of the people who work in it and the sort of the history of, of that so you know, it's a really neat opportunity, again, to tap into a specific community and uh, and a podcast that sort of addresses a, a very sort of specific uh, community. But there's so many. We've, like, we, we've now made so many shows. Uh, I could go on and on and on. But, you know, they're, to me, they're all interesting case studies of... Um, of of different sort of content niches and different examples and trying to find creative programming or creative solutions or creative audio uh, content around uh, different brands and uh, and and the the markets and audiences that they serve. Fantastic, thank you, and I really appreciate your time for and for being on the show. Thanks, it's been fun. Visit podstarter.io to find out how we can help you build the podcast you and your audience needs. To listen to more episodes, search Podstarter wherever you find your podcasts or visit our website. You can also find us on Instagram, LinkedIn, Twitter, and Facebook. Podstarter is produced in Nova Scotia, Canada by podstarter.io. Podstarter. 